This is Local Switchboard NYC, a women-led audio collective. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jordan Gosporé. We're here to bring you news on a human scale. News that reminds us that big stories often start small. News that keeps us connected. Local Switchboard's Betsy Lakin has your local headlines. 600,000 New Yorkers have already voted early. But the New York Board of Elections, despite being provided with millions in state funds, is under fire for excessive waiting time at the polls, voting machine shortages, and not enough planning to accommodate senior voters and those with special needs. Plans to expand Industry City for mixed-use development has been rejected, and instead neighborhood leaders and construction unions put forth a plan for wind turbine assembly plants at the South Brooklyn Marine Terminal, which could bring thousands of jobs to the long-dormant port. New York City is seeing a slow and steady rise of COVID-19 cases throughout various parts of the city. Mayor de Blasio announced an uptick in the positivity rate over the seven-day rolling average to 1.92% and said the city could put new restrictions into place if this number surpasses 2%. Protections have been put into place to prevent evictions, but many New York City families have lost possession of their belongings when unable to pay storage fees. The newly proposed Pandemic Self-Storage Act would prohibit facilities from holding on to customers' property for the duration of the state of emergency in New York. During this time of unprecedented upheaval across all aspects of society, nobody should move forward with the seizure and sale of people's personal property, said Democrat Assemblymember Jeffrey Donowitz from the Bronx, who is a co-sponsor of the bill. City Councilmember Carlina Rivera of Manhattan is working on legislation to limit the fees storage facilities can charge and to bring city oversight to this billion-dollar industry. In the rest of the show, the colorful past and uncertain future of a beloved Lower East Side neo-burlesque venue. When we first opened, it was very much a neighborhood thing. It was very much just like a, a Lower East Side hipster neighborhood kind of venue. And by the time COVID shut us down last March, you know, we had a real international reputation. We would get lots of tourists from around the world and a look back at the annual New York City Village Halloween Parade. So many of the artists who work on the parade are unemployed. They're Broadway people, they're theater people, they're musicians, they have no work. And everybody was getting pretty depressed by September for sure. I decided that I was going to give employment to people. And so I commissioned 40 artists to make puppets. We end the show with the latest news from the neighborhoods. That's all coming up on Local Switchboard NYC. Life is a cabaret, old chum. And to prove it, James and Camille Hallbacher opened the Slipper Room in 1999. Billed as a neo-burlesque variety house, it became celebrated for transgressive performances and lush jazz-age decor. Now, it's dark. Producer Lexi Lane interviewed James Hallbacher about the theater's colorful past and uncertain future. The Slipper Room, a burlesque and variety house on the Lower East Side, has been a New York institution for over 20 years. 
COVID has forced a temporary closure of the theater. James, what made you want to open the Slipper Room? Well, back in the mid-90s, we were doing shows in different venues around the city and, and private events in people's lofts and that kind of thing. And we felt like there wasn't really a venue that was specifically geared towards what we were doing. And uh, we decided that it would be a timely thing to do. So in 1998, we signed a lease on the space down on the Lower East Side and built a little theater. And, and uh, then the burlesque scene kind of evolved out of that. It was a kind of a ragtag thing at that point and, and, and really coalesced around the slipper room. How did you grow a presence in the burlesque community? I'm sorry? How did you grow a presence in the burlesque community? Oh, well, I think just by consistently putting on shows every night of the week, by making that our, our main focus. You know, when we first opened the Slipper Room, people would arrive at the venue and there'd be a show going on and they'd be like, oh, what is this? This is strange, you know? And then within a very short time, people would come in and they'd say, is there a show tonight? You know, it really, it caught on just by our continuing to do it consistently. What other kinds of performances did you offer? Well, over the years, we've had so many different things happen there. We've had, uh, you know, rock bands and operas and uh, full orchestra in there once that took up three quarters of the room, only left us a small amount of space in the room for uh, the audience. We've done plays, Pretty much any kind of theater that you could name has happened there over the past 20 years. Have you had a specific sort of favorite performance or night you can remember? Well, I mean, there's been so many of them that are memorable, but I did put on an operetta that was a joint project between the Slipper Room and Opera Francaise of, of New York that was particularly memorable for me. And... Uh, I would say also the, the final night of, of the, the old Slipper Room, you know, uh, about eight years ago, we built the, the new theater in the same location. They knocked the building down and then uh, they built a new theater for us. And uh, the final night of the old Slipper Room was, was very memorable. It was a performance all, all night long by so many great people who had worked with us over the years and uh, ended late into the evening, early morning with a, a naked pie fight, so. <laughs> Burlesque is a very old form of entertainment in a sense. How have you seen it evolve? Yeah, burlesque, I mean, technically has been around since uh, the ancient Egyptians. It's thousands of years old. And it's only been in the last century that it involved striptease at all. It's sort of, that's what it's, people associated with now why we call the shows variety shows is because they involve striptease but they also include uh, circus arts and acrobats and magicians and, and you know all these different types of uh, art that sort of fell by the wayside when television and movies came to the fore and uh, it's an attempt to revive a lot of those art forms it's it's really like vaudeville reborn you know is how we like to think of the slipper room have you seen a difference in the audiences you get between the old slipper room and the new slipper room yeah very much i mean everything has evolved 
for us over the past 20 years. It's constantly changing. And I'm sure that after COVID, it'll change again when we reopen. When we first opened, it was very much a neighborhood thing. It was very much just like a, a Lower East Side hipster neighborhood kind of venue. And by the time COVID shut us down last March, you know, we had a real international reputation. We would get lots of tourists from around the world. It definitely has evolved. In normal times, what makes the Lower East Side vibrant? Well, the Lower East Side, I mean, it's funny. I mean, ironically, we first chose to open the Slipper Room on the Lower East Side because it was so quiet down there. It seemed like uh, we, I had a club in the meatpacking district and that was getting really trendy in the late 90s and we wanted to get away from that. So we moved down to the Lower East Side. But the Lower East Side has such a storied history in, in New York. But, you know, there's books like Low Life and, and uh, Gangs of New York that take place really mostly on the Lower East Side. I mean, it was the most populated spot on the planet for a long time, you know. It's always been a real hub. And now it's, it's full of, you know, bars and restaurants and young people just coming to the city, discovering the city for the first time, and still a large population of people who've been there for generations. So, but, you know, we kind of are a destination location. It doesn't really matter where we are so much, but I do love that corner, you know, being on the corner of Orchard and Stanton has been really great for us and I wouldn't want to ever move the slipper room. You mentioned you owned a club in the 90s at the Meatpacking District. Yeah. Was that before the slipper room started or is that yeah. still around? That was, uh, I opened that in 1995. It was a place called Plush. It was a, more of a dance club, but that's where we started doing performance stuff. You know, I, I, uh, I had recently graduated from Bennington College where I did a lot of performance art. And, uh, you know, when we opened the dance club, we had an upstairs lounge and we started doing regular Thursday night performance parties. And that really was the impetus that led to the slipper room. Let's shift and talk about COVID. So how have the COVID closures impacted you and the theater directly? Well, it's been devastating to theater in New York, you know, and to us personally. Uh, you know, it seems at this point, like everything else in the city has been allowed to open. You know, they opened the retail stores, they opened the gyms, they opened the restaurants for inside dining, they opened the bowling alleys, you know, everything except theater. I feel like theater has really been stigmatized. Uh, you know, this has been going on for centuries where we're considered to be, you know, unclean. You know, it's crazy that everything is allowed to happen in the city now except theater. What are they afraid of? I don't know. Have you been able to keep in touch with any of your artists? Yeah, we've made a great effort to do, and the staff too. I had a great staff uh, and we've got a, uh, uh, an ongoing uh, group chat on, uh, on the phone, you know, a, a group text that's been going on since March. Uh, and I've, I've seen a lot of the performers, uh, you know, I've, I've gotten together with a bunch of the performers. Uh, we've done a couple of events where you know, it's been like giveaways just to get all the performers to come together. And, uh, you know, I've also sent out some group emails, keeping people in, informed of what's going on. So, yeah, I, I think the large majority of performers will be back 
once once we're allowed to open again. How has it impacted other buildings near you on the Lower East Side? Well, it seems like it's, you know, it's mostly bars and restaurants down there and most of them are back up and operating. I mean, for example, there's a restaurant on the ground floor of our building uh, and they've, they have a sidewalk permit and they've been operating, you know, pretty consistently. You know, our difficulty is that we're on the second and third floor. We don't serve food and entertainment's not allowed. So we're not really in any way able to operate, but uh, it seems like there's still a very vibrant scene on the Lower East Side right now. Did it feel reminiscent of the Cabaret Law debacle from years ago? Well, it does in the sense that I feel like the authorities are overstepping. You know, I, I think that if you're going to allow every other business in the city to, to function on some level to open, you know, with restrictions, and I understand there has to be restrictions to protect people, but uh, I do think that theater is being singled out. And I think uh, part of that has to do with the fact that Broadway, uh, which operates in a very different way than we do, uh, you know, they're not able to function without selling most all of their seats. You know, they've announced that they're not going to open until next summer. And so we've been kind of lumped in with them. But yeah, I do think it's arbitrary and capricious. And I also think that as a theater, we could operate in a safer manner than restaurants. You could come in to see a show at the Slipper Room, a one hour show, and not have to take your mask off at all. You know, we have masks that have a little flap that you could drink through a straw. So you can have a drink or two and, and unlike a restaurant, not have to remove your mask at all and to be in there for a very specific and limited period of time. But, you know, I don't really think it's about the science. I don't think it's about health and safety. I think it's just politics. How have you managed issues and closures throughout the years, be it cabaret or COVID? Well, you know, we're tenacious and they're not going to put an end to us, even if this went on for another year. We have some resources because luckily the Slipper Room was planning on opening up a second location. So we had saved up a bunch of money. We did get a small PPP loan early on, but, you know, that was meant specifically for paying salaries. And then if you don't allow us to open, that's not very useful. So I don't think the government really has any sense of, of the best way to help us because I don't think they have any, first of all, I don't think they have any love for small business. And second of all, I don't think they really understand how they operate. Uh, you know, it's pretty much if it's not on the big corporate model, it's beyond them. Uh, but, you know, we also have some people who love the slipper room who have told me privately that, you know, should it come to it, that they would back us to make sure that we don't go out of business. So, you know, there is, there is people out there who, who have our back. Where are you planning to open a second location? Well, right before COVID hit, we were looking at two spaces, uh, two potential spaces. One of them was uh, the old Sheffield Hall space, which had been a, a performance venue, you know, since the, I guess, right after the Civil War, it opened. And it's been, it was operating as a Pilates studio for the past 20 years, but it's now vacant. And we were close to a deal on that. And, and there was also a space down in Tribeca that uh, had 
recently been purchased by a, a guy who had an, a plan to put in uh, six floors of, of different art, uh, you know, galleries and performance spaces. And, and we had been talking to him as well. So one of the two of those probably would have happened. Do you have plans to reopen the original location at any point in the future? And do you know how that will look? Well, as soon as they allow us to open, we will. You know, I mean, we, we, we have to follow the, the regulations. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not interested at this point in doing anything covert. You know, we're, we're going to play by the rules. Um, as soon as they allow us to open, we will. And if there's restrictions, say, you know, we put together a model where we should be able to function with only 25% capacity. If we did seatings like they do in a jazz club, where you, you know, we did four or six shows a night as opposed to our normal way of operating where you come in and stay as long as you like. So, you know, we could, we could feasibly function right now if they let us, we have a plan that we consider to be very safe and, uh, and could be implemented immediately, but we're just waiting for permission. Besides the lower capacity change, what other changes for safety would you make if you do? Well, if they allow us to open, say, theoretically before there's a vaccine then you know i mean there would be increased amount of cleaning uh there would be requirements for temperature checks there would be requirements for for masks that people would have to wear while they were in the venue um we would do extra safety for the for the performers backstage you know by by booking people in a staggered uh way so that there weren't so many people in the dressing room uh, you know, we could change the filters in our air conditioning system. You know, there's a lot you can do to, to make it safer. I mean, I, I think there's always a risk if you're going to do something indoors. But most of our audience are young, healthy people who, if they would choose to come and see a show, you know, are probably not at very great risk. Do you think the New York theater scene will be permanently changed by the epidemic? Definitely. You know, whether, I, I don't think it's going to destroy the, the New York theater scene. I think it's going to come back strong as soon as the state and the city allows us to, but I definitely think it's going to change and it changes all the time. I mean, that's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, I mean, I saw, we do a lot of comedy at the slipper room, and I saw the Me Too movement change comedy in a huge way. And I felt that was for the better, you know? Um, uh, performers come and go. There's a lot of performers who've moved out of the city that might not move back. But then if rents come down the way they're anticipating, you know, that there could be as much as a 30, 40% drop in, in rents, then maybe more artists will come to New York and it could be a flowering of the art scene here. Have your own rent change or do you own the building the slipper room resides no, in? unfortunately we don't own the building uh my landlord has been very reasonable and has been very willing to work with us uh understanding that you know we're, we're close and there's no income whatsoever uh you know we have paid him some money and continue to to try to pay him some money but we we certainly haven't been paying our full rent since april and uh, like I say, I feel like he's been very reasonable. And we're coming up on uh, a period in two years where we're going to be negotiating a new lease. 
and I think, you know, I'm optimistic at that point that rents will have come down in New York and we'll be in a, in a better place. The pandemic has deprived New York City of its orchestras and theaters and now faces the loss of another spectacle, the annual New York City Village Halloween Parade. Local switchboard's Sarah Montague wanted to know what happens when even the ghosts get furloughed. The parade was the inspiration of puppeteer Ralph Lee. It started as a walk he took with his children from the artists' housing complex Westbeth at the edge of the Hudson River to Washington Square Park. So that's how it started. It was quite simple. And then the next year, more people joined him because he made puppets and people carried the puppets. And then the next year, more people joined him. That's Jean Fleming, who's been the parade's artistic and producing director for the last 40 years. It was also the time when happenings were happening in the city, when Mayor Lindsay was mayor, and that kind of thing was encouraged. So it was a combination of just luck that he lived in the village and that it was a time when happenings were possible. It got to be a bit too much of a happening for Lee, and that's when Fleming took over. She calls herself a celebration artist. What I loved about the parade was the public participation. What's always been of great interest to me is to give people who aren't artists an opportunity to feel what that's like. I really believe that that changes the heart. Michelle Levine would agree. She watches the parade every year with her family. I like all the creativity and the diverse perspectives. Like there's no right or wrong. You know, just the unity and the community and all the creative work and so much talent and intelligence behind each person's ideas. I started attending the parade in the late 1980s and remember the low-key event that Lee created. Then it seemed to me it began to get political. Fleming says that was partly due to the influence of the pride movement, but also that... What I notice is the parade really changes depending on the year. What's the zeitgeist? What's happening in the world at that moment? And so this year would have been a political year. With a vengeance. In some ways, it's a blessing (laughs) that the parade is canceled. I hate to say that because I really believe in the live event. Because at the end, this is meant to be a joyous, if raucous, event. And it's uh, what they call a feast crowd, which is a happy crowd. And so it actually protects the village and the surrounding area. Fleming means it protects the village from random violence and crime, but of course not from the holiday's own traditions of transgression and inversion. People always say to me, what was the best costume you ever remember in the parade? And one of my super favorites was a father with his child. He was probably around six or so. The child had on a store-bought Godzilla mask, which consumed half his body. The father walked in front of him, placing Dixie cups along the parade route, and the son stomped them as he walked along. He was the best thing in the parade that year. The other thing Fleming loves about her job is her unique access. The wonderful thing about the Halloween parade is is it allows me access to absolutely everyone, from the top of city government, state government, right down to all the ethnic groups in the city because we have 38 different kinds of music in the parade. That's all the ethnicities of New York City. 
Rob Christensen, an audio engineer at WNYC, is part of this unique collective music scene. My wife and I play in a group called Maraca to New York. It's a Brazilian percussion ensemble. We gather down in on 6th Avenue below Houston in a pen where all the groups warm up together. And then we march up 6th Avenue and it's always a great time. I'm not that outgoing a person, but my percussion group was marching up 6th Avenue. It was, I think, the first year I did the play with, with that group. And we're nervous. We're performing in front of a lot of people. And I remember thinking, you know, I've got to get this right. I've got to play my drum right. And then I looked around at the crowd, and I realized, I'm wearing a mask. No one knows who I am, and I'm playing a drum in front of thousands of people. Like, let's let it rip. This is New York City, let's go. And that was the moment when it became you know, my parade. When the decision was made to cancel this year's parade, at first Fleming was disoriented. One of the problems I'm having actually this year is that I have it so in my bloodstream that I literally wake up and go, oh my God, it's September 25th. I should be doing this. You know, I know what I should be doing. And then it's like, uh, there's nothing to do. But then Fleming's inner artist kicked in. She knew right away that she didn't want to create a lame virtual parade. And then I understood what I had to do, which is that we're going to take the giant puppets of the Halloween parade and make them tiny. And we're going to take the humans of the Halloween parade and make them giants. And once I understood that, I knew exactly what I had to do. Which was to make a movie. So many of the artists who work on the parade are unemployed. They're Broadway people, they're theater people, they're musicians, they have no work. And everybody was getting pretty depressed by September for sure. I decided that I was going to give employment to people. And so I commissioned 40 artists to make puppets, little puppets. They're a foot tall and that they would create their avatars. In other words, if they were coming to the parade, what would they be this year? Then there had to be somewhere for the puppets to go. So I commissioned a friend of mine who's a Broadway set painter and designer. That was Richard Prowse. To create Manhattan in a backdrop. So we're making what's called a cranky. It's a hand controlled scroll. Only this scroll is 48 inches high. We realized that we didn't have to keep to the parade route. We could do whatever we wanted. We didn't have to ask the NYPD. So we decided the parade route goes from the Statue of Liberty to the Cloisters. And all of the famous buildings of New York are in this gorgeous drop dead backdrop. This movie tells the story of the parade and what's on people's minds this year. It will have Black Lives Matter in it. It has get out the vote things in it. It has Machine Dazzle, one of the artists, created an extraordinary coronavirus puppet that lights up, that's being destroyed by nanobats. There's a squid. There's a tiny devil. There's a gorgeous beautiful goddess. The movie's title is almost as long as the parade. It's called the world premiere, first ever double magnificent intergalactic miniature Halloween parade. What I liked about this was it was an authentic creative act. It's not a substitute for the parade. Of course, there is no substitute for the parade. Michelle Levine. It's really sad because it gives us something to do. It's a really beautiful way to spend family time together. 
and Rob Christensen hoped it might be an antidote to despair while we are awaiting a real antidote. We would love to be there. And obviously, like, it's a tragedy going on right now. And I wish everybody had jobs and enough food and normal lives and something like this that's a release. Some traditions will be honored. Basil the Spider, a favorite with neighborhood kids, will make his annual crawl down the sides of the Jefferson Market Library, and there will be a retrospective photo display in Times Square called Till We Meet Again. For Fleming, the spirit of what she's been able to create was summed up when the narrator of her film met one of the puppets, a tiny figure of Pinocchio. A little tiny puppet, smaller than all the other puppets. And I showed it to our narrator, who's Donald Corrin, and he looked at it and he said, this year I'm a puppet, but next year I'll be a real boy. It says everything about what we're doing. It's all about, we hope next year we'll be able to be live, that we'll all be real boys and girls again. For Local Switchboard, I'm Sarah Montague. Each week, we bring you news from our neighborhoods. Even though there is no Halloween parade this year, Greenwich Village has plenty to offer in the way of spooky. Pumpkins leer genially from shop windows, brownstones and townhouses are covered in cobwebs, and skeletons dangle from various bits of scaffolding as if they are the unfortunate remains of workers on our many endless construction projects. In Stonewall National Monument Park, two dressed-up ghouls preside over a pumpkin patch. Maybe they are meant to be our own special version of American Gothic. In Long Island City, it's not too late to submit to the Hunters Point Park's Conservancy Costume Contest. To enter, post a photo of yourself, or your child, or your pet, on Instagram, and tag HPPC at LIC Waterfront. If you don't use Instagram, you can email your submissions to info at HuntersPointParks.org. HPPC is also planting 12 thousand bulbs in Hunters Point South Park and Gantry Plaza State Park on Halloween. I'm Jordan Gosporé, and you've been listening to Local Switchboard NYC. Our team is host me, Jordan Gosporé, and reporters Sarah Montague, Betsy Lakin, Heather Chin, and Lexi Lane. You're part of our neighborhood now, so if there's a local story you think is important, let us know at localswitchboardnyc at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>